We're also going to pray for educators this morning. Hey, thank y'all. That's, that's, that's even better. I like that. Uh, can I have all my educators stand up? Anybody that's in education in any way, if you're a teacher, if you work in administration, uh, any of those roles, just stand for a moment. I want you to see the people, the faces that are around us right now. We're going to pray for y'all specifically um, during our prayer time. I want you to know that the things we're praying for for y'all are endurance, uh, the wisdom of Solomon, uh, patience of Job, uh, the ability to sort out who, you know, had discipline issues, uh, curriculum decisions, uh, complicated parents. I mean, you have a lot of stuff to deal with as teachers and educators and those who are working with uh, in administration. And we want to be very specific and strategic this morning about praying for you as we pray for these other folks. So y'all don't have to stand during the whole prayer, so y'all can go ahead and be seated. All right, let's pray. God, we are thankful for these few minutes that we have together this morning. Uh, one of the things that we want to do first, Lord, is lift up our educators and those who are uh, working in administration, teaching, and all the different ways that uh, uh, people um, serve in the education field. Lord, we want to lift them up and ask you to give them um, patience as they're going about um, just the crazy rigors of curriculum development and uh, personalities and uh, combinations of personalities. And then parental concerns and administrative uh, issues and, and all the, the, the requirements that are placed on, on, uh, in the education field. Lord, we just want to lift these people up. Our brothers and sisters in Christ ask you to, and we're asking you to bless them, Lord. Bless them to the point where they have an overflow as they gather on Monday mornings with a classroom of kids or they gather at, a, uh, as, at an office, administrative office. Bless them with an overflow that they are serving our community and they have an opportunity to serve it well as a salty, bright, aromatic worshiper. Lord, we pray that you would give them wisdom as they sort out difficult decisions and just give them endurance and patience entrusting these folks, these dear folks to you. Lord, also this morning we want to pray for the Ansiri people. Lord, we are uh, just the notion of, a mil of 11 million people that don't know you is alarming and uh, a burden for us, Lord. And uh, coupled with the thought of a friendly people that, that are giving access, that are welcoming with open arms, good news uh, of the kingdom, Lord, we pray that you would burden workers to go to the far corners of the field and that you would equip them with a, 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 a potent message. And Lord, that you would gather uh, the nations, and specifically this morning, Lord, the Ansari people, uh, entrusting this people to you and asking uh, big, or making big requests, uh, knowing that you own the nations, and just pray that you would gather this, this nation to you uh, sooner than later. Lord, also we want to pray for Highland Terrace Baptist Church and for Chet Haney. Uh, just uh, want to lift Chet up this morning as a, a man, first of all, and a worshiper. Uh, just um, imagining all that he's carrying right now with health issues and I'm sure he has his own complement of, of family life dynamics and um, just all of life he carries uh, from day to day as he's ministering to the people of Highland Terrace. Lord, I pray that you would sustain him, that you would bless him, that he would be uh, encountering you in the work, uh, that you would guard him from just showing up and doing a job, but that he'd be fueled by calling and worship. Lord, we pray that you would sustain him in the work and bless him in the work. And we pray for Highland Terrace Baptist Church, Lord, that you would bless that church to the point where they uh, have great problems like seating issues and parking issues and uh, that they would be discipling, raising up disciples uh, for your glory. Lord, we are entrusting uh, Highland Terrace Baptist Church to you and thankful for the chance to serve with them in this community. 
Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that you will give us a, a sweet, um, potent view of mercy. Lord, this thing that's easy to talk about, that's hard to walk out. Pray that you would equip us to do that very thing this morning. I turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. I only have a couple places uh, for us to go this morning. Matthew 5 will be one place. A brief stop in, in um, Hebrews chapter 2. And then the rest of the morning will be in, in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, with the optional turn to uh, Exodus chapters 33 and 34. So that's just kind of a map for the morning. Uh, I'll give you those verses again in case you're taking notes. We're in Matthew 5, starting with the, the fifth beatitude this morning. Uh, we'll be moving over to uh, Hebrews chapter 2 briefly, and then spending the majority of the morning in Matthew 18, and then with a little brief uh, little visit over to Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Some re revenge books that come to mind that I'm aware of, at least, are the Count of Monte Cristo. It makes the top of the list. I did some research on revenge books, and Count of Monte Cristo is, is the top of most lists. I, I've been reading the Count of Monte Cristo for about a year and a half now. It's a long book. It's a big, big, it's a paperback that I have that's nearly worn out, and I have about that much left, so I'm really getting close. It is a great book. This guy, Alexander Dumas, is an unbelievable writer. From what I understand, he wrote it just as a filler like the, the people were pressing him, hey, you need to write something. So he just spit this thing out. But it's phenomenal. But I'm not, not, I don't get any kickbacks from Count of Monte Cristo sales. It's just a great book on revenge. There's some other revenge books that you might be aware of. Hamlet, okay? Great Expectations, Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, for the readers among us, you can probably think of a host of others. A lot of us, I think, given the option of reading a book or seeing the movie, might out for the movie. Okay, I, I know book readers are cringing at just even that notion. But movies that have to do with revenge or gladiator, I mean, are you not entertained? I mean, what a great, great movie, right? Story of revenge. Man on fire. Payback. Even the title alone says, man, you know what that's going on. What's going on there? Taken. Cape Fear. Unforgiven. The Revenant. The Princess Bride. It is. It's a revenge story. <laughs> Quirky one, but it, it. law abiding citizen. The Godfather. The Punisher. That's a good one. City of God. Kill Bill One. Kill Bill Two. Man, there are tons of movies about revenge. There's something about the bad guy getting his or her dude that's really satisfying and really sells. In sort of preparation for this sermon this morning, I, uh, going back and researching these books, I thought, you know, I know I've seen True Grit. I've never, I never saw the first True Grit, but I know I've seen the most recent True Grit, the remake. And, um, but it's been some time. So I thought, so for preparation this morning, I need to see it. So Evan and I watched it night before last. That is a great movie. I mean, if you're just looking for a great rental, that is a great movie. Some of the funniest lines in that movie. But it's a story of revenge. I mean, the entire story is a story of revenge. Maddie Ross is sort of the central gal in the movie, and her dad was killed by a guy named Tom Chaney. And her whole mission in the entire movie is revenge, is getting back at this guy. 
and seeing him hang or seeing him shot or seeing something terrible happen, being imprisoned or something like that. So it's a very satisfying movie if you really like to see the bad guy get his due. You know, I was thinking it's, it's hard to think of a movie that doesn't have revenge, at least as a subplot. This came out as a movie somewhat recently, but I know it a, was a book long before that, The Help. Have you ever read The Help or seen the movie? There's a delicious little subplot in there, and I use that word strategically, delicious little subplot in there of revenge that might change the way you eat chocolate cake forever. We love revenge, man, I'm telling you. It sells, it's easy to read, it's easy to watch. Today, though, our Lord, in keeping with these past four Beatitudes, shows us something altogether different. He shows us something that really is going to be a surprising saying on what is real happiness. The notion is that revenge is really where you're going to find the happy spot, that sweet spot of enjoyment. But he says a life characterized by mercy for others is one that truly flourishes. So my plan for these next few minutes is to sort of unpack uh, the verse. It's a very simple verse. I want to spend a few minutes sort of looking at, exploring the space, if you will, for mercy. Just the word mercy and what it means. It's used twice in this verse, in this fifth beatitude. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. And then we're going to go to a parable. And we're going to spend the majority of our time on a parable. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We've sort of followed a similar plan as we've unpacked these beatitudes each week where we ask the question, who are these people? And what are they promised? That's kind of been the way we've unpacked those. So we'll follow that same plan this morning. It's a very simple plan. Who are these people and what are they promised? In order to understand who these people are, we have to understand this word, mercy. The adjective form of the word word is, is here at the beginning of this verse. And the verb form is later on in the verse. The adjective word being the merciful and then later on receive mercy is the verb form. The adjective form is the word L.A. Manon. L.A. Excuse me, L.A. Moan. L.A. Moan, okay? I know you guys are going to take some good notes on that. And the, the, the verb form is L.A. Thesantai. L.A. Thesantai. And I'll, I'll refer to those briefly. It's not hugely important, but if you're just curious. It, and both those come from the Greek word, the, the root word, eleos, for mercy. Elemon is the adjective. That's what's in the first part of this verse. Elethesantai is the verb form at the end from the root word elios, meaning mercy. Uh, The verb form at the end of the verse is what is promised to those who are characterized by elemon. Okay, who are characterized by the adjective mercy. And the way that verb form, the way that they, they translate it here is they shall receive mercy. That sounds like a noun. Okay, if you want to really understand it the way it's communicated in the original language, it's a divine passive, meaning that it's something that the merciful receive passively from God who's doing the verb. So you could almost read it that God mercies the merciful, if you wanted to make up a whole new word. God mercies actively delivering mercy to the merciful. This is God's verb. And it's done to us, given to us passively as those who are living and moving in a way that's characteristically merciful. The way we can get a sense that we're talking about characteristic mercy is we're talking about this this definite article in front of merciful here 
Blessed are the merciful. Of is not in the original language. It just says blessed the merciful. That gives a sense we're talking about a pattern of life, a pattern of merciful deeds, a way of life. These last few weeks, if you've really been paying attention, each of these Beatitudes flow this way. They're presented as a characteristic of a people. The flourishing people, these flourishing people that we've been enjoying together these last few weeks are characterized by poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then here, last, mercy. And let me just tell you right now, Show me a people that are characterized by even just these first five, and I'm a, you're going you're gonna to be looking at a remarkable people, an unbelievably otherworldly people, a people that will stand out in stark contrast to a world that is decaying, that is dark, that is confused, that's pursuing all manner of falsehood, a people that are characterized by these, these things, the merciful as, as, as an identity, Man, those people, they are merciful. Man, that's my hope as we're moving very slowly through these Beatitudes is that we are characterized by these things, that they could call us to cross point the merciful, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What a sweet goal. This word merciful, a synonym, and I would call it a lightweight synonym for the word merciful here, is uh, the word kindness. Okay, that's something we can see and touch. It's a very familiar word to us. It, I call it a lightweight synonym because it doesn't really capture all of mercy, but at least gives some sense of it. I grabbed that from Young's Literal Translation, which is a great uh, translation if you use different versions as you're reading the Bible. Young's Literal is a handy version to have right there beside you. The adjective for merciful is found only in one other passage in Hebrews chapter 2. I mentioned to you that you could turn there if you'd like. We'll be here just briefly. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, you can just listen if you'd like. This, this is the only other place the adjective is used. For surely it's not angels that he helps. Okay, just listen for a moment. Kind of see if you can capture what's being said here. Surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps, that's God helps the offspring of Abraham. That if you're paying attention to repeated words, ideally you are, you've seen helps there twice. It's not angels he helps, but the offspring of Abraham he helps. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He's speaking of our Lord here. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, in order that, he might become a merciful, there it is, the adjectival form. And faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help, there it is again, those who are being tempted. He was made so us, or like us, so that, for the purpose of, that he might be a merciful and kind high priest toward us in our weakness and help us when we're tempted. Okay, that really has nothing to do with the sermon other than it's a few moments to really enjoy the kind of Savior that we have that was made like us in every respect. Fully God yet fully human. Able to help us help, help, help because he's driven by something that we can enjoy this morning that we're going to enjoy for the rest of the morning. Mercy. He is merciful and kind toward us. 
each of these Beatitudes, as you really study them, you realize, oh, well, Jesus, Jesus uh, demonstrated that here beautifully. The reality is, as you follow Christ, these Beatitudes will begin to show up in your life. And more and more so with every year that goes by as you're following and trusting Christ. Man, that's something we can enjoy together. The more you follow Christ, the more you'll become like him, be, being merciful and kind. Last thing I'll share with you before we get to our um, parable is the merciful and kind way of life. I think this is something we should really enjoy. I mentioned this last week when we were in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5. There's a passage in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus says, Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, or you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about it last week that everybody out there on that mountaintop would have probably said, What? These guys are the most devout people in the world. They even tithe their dill and mint and cumin. Remember we were talking about that last week where the, the offering plate looks like a mixing bowl because they have all their, all their seasonings in there? That would just be weird. But, I mean, it's a focus on these guys are seriously devout. This is a way, though, that those people on that mountainside and these people in this room today, this is a way that our righteousness can exceed that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because this was not something that they practiced mercy. There's a theme throughout the Gospels, especially in, in, in Matthew, where Jesus says to these Pharisees and Sadducees who are always trying to trip him up, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You guys think you have it all figured out. You know lots of religious stuff, but you don't know what mercy is. Man, you tied your mint and your dill and your cumin. Great job. But you don't know what this essential, central part of what it means to follow me is called mercy. Go and learn what this thing is. Mercy. You think you've got it figured out, but you don't understand mercy. So hopefully this week and next week, we will do what the Pharisees didn't do. We'll understand mercy. And my goal this morning is to really look at one of two aspects of mercy. Uh, the way we sort of unpack these, these Beatitudes each week is we've considered that, that they are illustrated and explained elsewhere, if not in the sermon itself, the Sermon on the Mount, then at least elsewhere in the book of Matthew, almost without fail. And the same will be true this morning. There are really two different ways that mercy is applied in the book of Matthew. And yesterday, I said, man, it's hard for me to do this, but I'm going to cut this sermon in half. So we'll have part two next week. Okay, You'll be glad. The nursery workers will be glad, too, because we'll be done a little bit earlier, maybe than last week. Not early. Don't get your hopes up. But we're going to look at one of those two trajectories for mercy this morning, and specifically dealing with mercy that's intertwined with forgiveness. All right, turn to Matthew chapter 18. That's where we're going to spend pretty much the rest of our morning. Matthew chapter 18. And I really want you to turn there. I haven't heard a lot of pages, so I'd like to hear some pages where actually people are turning. I don't have a whole lot to say that's not from this book, so it's helpful to have that book in front of you. Um, I don't, uh, I, don't, I don't deviate from it uh, often. And if I do, it's only to expose what I believe is right there in front of us. So Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to begin in verse 15, a very familiar passage on um, church discipline. Uh, it's that, that's sort of the, the language that we use. Or really, if, if you want to just kind of follow the head, heading there, it says, if your brother sins against you. 
Okay, this will be a familiar passage. If you've been around the church for any period of time, you've probably heard one, someone say, hey, man, have you done Matthew 18 yet in this, this issue that you have with someone? Okay, this is that passage in, in, that people are often referring to in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, that's a, if you've studied church discipline, that, that may be a completely unfamiliar phrase to you. This, this, this is about a process of how do we deal with sin or uh, issues with one another within the church. Okay, ideally, if you follow a process here. One, you know, one person goes to the other, and then if he doesn't hear that appeal, then two go to that person. And then if he doesn't he'll, uh, hear that appeal and repent, then it's, it's shared with the church. And eventually, when it says they're treated like a tax collector and sinner, what that means is they're removed from the church. Okay, this is that passage that deals with that. Okay, now right beyond that, which is for me what I would so love Matthew 18 to be known more for, is a little conversation between Peter and Jesus and then one of the most beautiful parables in our Bible. So we're going to pick up in verse 21. I shared that church discipline section just for context. But look at verse 21. This is so delicious. I'm telling you, this is so good. So Peter came up and said to him, Lord, I heard what you said about church discipline. That's going to come in handy. Because, man, James and John, they get on my nerves sometimes. And I like to have a process where we can sort stuff out. You know what I'm saying? We keep a clean slate. Because, you know, if we carry that stuff around, man, that would be bad. So thanks. That was handy. Um, Lord, how often, though, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Okay, let me answer the first part of that question. Like, a lot. How often will my brother sin against me? He wasn't asking how often are people going to sin against me. He's asking how often am I supposed to forgive him? How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? That's a lot, right? As many as seven times, Jesus, and Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but my, okay, my newer ESV, if you have a really new ESV, English Standard Version, says 77 times. I had to read it like 12 times because I learned this verse a long time ago. It was 70 times seven. If you have any other translation or if you have an older ESV, it says 70 times seven. So it's not 77. It's 70 times seven. It's 490 times. Right? That's, that's 70 times 7. For the, I, a, lot of, a lot of folks work at L3. I understand. You know, you're, you've already crunched the numbers in your head. I heard them. heard the little calculators. I do not say to you seven times, Peter, but 70 times 7. I'm just imagining what this moment would have, would have unfolded like as Peter brought this question to Jesus. You know, Peter, he's always the one to open his pie hole first. You know, he's like, and he just says whatever he's thinking. He just spits it out. Okay? And he says... Um, Okay, Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody? Seven's a pretty good number, right? That's really reasonable to throw out seven. It seems ample, doesn't it, Jesus? I wonder if he was looking for a pat on the back like, yeah, Peter, seven would be a lot. <laughs> you know, if James and John were doing the same thing to you over and over again and you forgave them seven times, man, good job. Good job, Peter. I was thinking about the kind of things that we have to say I'm sorry for. I sat down with Evan and, and Christy um, a 
Christy's taking Evan back to college today. So I had a few minutes with them yesterday before they, before they left this morning. We were talking about this sermon. I, if they're leaving town, I give them the sermon ahead of time. I want to make sure they don't miss it. Not really. I was just talking about, about the sermon with them. And, I, and we were talking about reasons that we need to say I'm sorry in our home and sort of our family environment, our family dynamic. I'm sorry I didn't load the dishwasher. Okay, that's one I'm sorry. One that people should say more often is I'm sorry I didn't load the dishwasher correctly. Because <laughs> there is a correct way to load the dishwasher. I unload the dishwasher every day and then reload it. <sighs> sorry I didn't call or text. Right? Man, I got busy. I'm sorry I didn't call or text. Sorry I left the car on empty. Right? Not running errands, pull up there, things on, running on fumes. Sorry I left the toilet seat up. It's not cool, dudes. Take care of your ladies. Sorry I placed the toilet roll upside down. <laughs> Speaking of that, there is a right way and a wrong way. Sorry I did it the wrong way. Sorry I didn't roll the toothpaste from the end. There's lots of little things that we can say around our home. They're little small I'm sorry's that you say 70 times 7. That's like, okay, that's pretty easy. I could say, I could, I could, could uh, forgive someone 490 times for not rolling the toothpaste correctly. Not a big deal. But it gets more difficult when it's, I'm sorry that I got angry. I'm sorry that I spoke to you, not like you're my wife, but spoke to you in a way that I would be embarrassed if anyone hurt me. I'm sorry that I raised my voice to you. Does anybody ever have any of those I'm sorry's? Can y'all appreciate at least Peter's question that how many times when you consider it like that? When we consider the gravity of the offense, then we have to think about the number of times that we're going to forgive someone and say, well, there's got to be a line, right, Jesus? Man, wouldn't it have been nice if he'd have spoken to all that? Abuse, murder, infidelity. I mean, let's think about the most heinous things we can possibly think of and throw them in there. Is in there a line? Man, I'd like to know that there's some sort of line just to give me an out. Isn't there a time that you should say, no, I'm done forgiving you. You're never going to change. Has anybody ever said that? Anybody ever felt that way? Man, hopefully we can identify with Peter. Saying, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me seven times, shame on me. Man. Peter, I appreciate here, this guy is a natural man. He is a window, if Peter is anything, he is a window into the natural man. And Jesus responds, though, not as the natural man. Fully God and fully man, he responds, he says, oh no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Man, there's a hint of jubilee in there, isn't it? Like a clean slate. Forgiveness. Sounds a little like, Peter, who's counting? Almost like, Peter, why are you counting? And here, Peter, let me help you with a parable that will help you with your counting problem. I'm going to provide a beautiful, simple parable to you that will help you with your counting problem. And that continues in verse 23. I'll read the parable through and then we'll just sort of grab the details. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Okay, let me connect the dots before I continue here. We're still talking about mercy here. In your mind, you might be thinking, it sounds like we're talking about forgiveness here. We're still talking about being merciful, like characteristically. And you'll see here in a moment why this parable connects so cleanly with the Beatitudes. Okay, in verse 28, we continue. You met the first uh, servant, fell on his knees. He owes this massive debt. We'll figure out that we'll do a little calculating here in a minute. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant, out of compassion, that's a synonym for, uh, in the original language for pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Man, that's mercy right there. You want to know what it looks like? That looks like, that's what mercy looks like. Okay? But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants, okay, you've met servant one, massive debt forgiven by the king. Servant two, smaller debt, we're going to calculate here in a minute, not forgiven by the one that he owed. Okay, and then there's a third group here, and that's the, the rest of the servants. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they're greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had, here it is, mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. All right, let's just take a minute and sort of unpack this. This, is, this parable is just such a simple treasure. First of all, servant one, he owes the king 10,000 talents. You might have a little note down your bottom, bottom of your Bible. Uh, you may have done this calculation before. A talent is 20 years wage. I said that right, 20 years' wage. And he owes the master, the king here in this parable, 10,000 of those. 10,000 times 20 years is 200,000 years' wage okay, of a day laborer. Now, a day laborer in that time, I, I don't know what it was, maybe a denarii for you, something like that. Okay, for us, maybe it's $30,000, $40,000. Just for figuring's sake, I made it $50,000, just so we could figure out exactly what we're working with here. So 10000 times $1 million is what, it w- is what one talent would be. 20 years' wage for someone earning $50,000 a year, you could bank a $1 million. Some of y'all are like, man, what, really? <laughs> How come I haven't done that? Well, because it's gone. You're spending it. But just think about that for a moment. 20 years' wage at $50,000 amounts to a million dollars. So we're talking about 10,000 times a million. I think that's like 10 billion. I was trying to do it on my calculator to make sure it just gave me you know, some, some digits there I, I couldn't make sense of. And, and I'm embarrassed to say that in front of all the engineers in the room. 10,000 times a million, I'm pretty sure, is 10 billion. 
okay? It, it might as well be a bajillion. If I were telling the story, if it was me telling the, the parable just from scratch and making up a little story, that's the word I would have used, is a bajillion. The first servant owes the king a bajillion dollars. And then servant two owes servant one, if you figure out the same sort of wage based on what a denarii is worth, a thousand dollars. Servant one owes the king a bajillion, 10 billion to be specific. Servant two owes servant one, chump change in contrast, a thousand dollars. Okay. And servant one, though, demanded in a way that was exacting payment from servant two. And then the rest of the servants, man, they said, this is revolting. This is revolting. This is the anti-version of being salty and bright. This is revolting. We cannot contend with this. This is hard to watch. We need to go talk to and appeal to the king about this issue. This guy, this exacting guy, is bathing in newsworthy debt forgiveness, and yet he's exacting servant two to give him $1,000. We can't stand for this. And the king, man, the king wasn't good with it either. Look at what the king says in verse 32. You get his response. The master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Shouldn't you have shown your fellow servant mercy as I did? Need to comment on this parable? Are you seeing the pregnant truth is sitting right in front of you? I suspect that Peter and the disciples did at that moment. He didn't really go on to explain it. He doesn't need to. It's one of those parables that really doesn't need a lot of explanation, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. Because I think, I think there's some things here that we really need to draw out here. First of all, we need to know who's who. The king in this parable, the master in this parable, is, is God. Okay, let's start there. And he is merciful. Let's start there. I told you I was going to make a brief visit over to Exodus chapter 33 and 34. If you'd like to turn there, you can. I'm going to just read a couple of passages. Um, and actually, it's not going to hurt you. Go ahead and turn there. It's not a long sermon this morning. i got a lot of currency to work with. So turn to Exodus 33 and 34 with me. This is just such a treasure. I want you to see this. You know, Moses, you know the story of Moses asking to see God's glory. Okay. You've heard of that story before, asking to see God's glory. And God says, well, I'm going to stuff you in this cleft of the rock because then when I pass by, you know, you really can't see my face and live. You know, my glory, would, my holiness and glory would consume you is sort of the implication there. This is that story. What's in front of his request to see his glory is in verse 11, show me your ways. God, show me your ways. He says later in the chapter in 34... In 33, in verse 18, he says, show me your glory. Show me your ways and show me your glory. And then God says, okay, I'm going to pass before you. And I'm going to declare my name. And I'm going to declare my name before you because in my name you can see my ways and see my glory. Look at his name as he passes before Moses. In chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
man, let's just enjoy for a minute that this is the kind of God that we have. A merciful and kind God. That's the master in this parable. That's the king in this parable. A merciful and kind God. We have to enjoy that together. The verse continues where I think the rest of the parable plays out, but who will by no means clear the guilty. When you see what he did with servant number, number one, you can see the rest of his name being played out. As I will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And the guy's locked up and thrown in, into, uh, into prison with his family in the parable, right? I mean, his name plays out in that parable. He's merciful and kind and gracious and slow to anger for giving a bajillion dollars to a guy that clearly didn't deserve it. But he will by no means clear servant one when he's been such a knucklehead to servant two. His name plays out in the parable, and it's beautiful. That's who the king is. That's who the master is. And then you have to know that the servants are the rest of us. The servants are everyone else. And what's implied here is that all owe this debt. That all owe the first debt. Now, we might have some small debts between one another, $1,000 here and there. A thousand, I forget how many denarii, but a thousand, what equates to $1,000 chump change between one another. But all of us equally owe this massive debt toward our God. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. All owe an incalculable debt that we can never repay for our sin. We are all, all equally culpable and guilty. We're in cahoots with one another. A room full of servants. Man, here's what struck me. I mean, I think the reason we love revenge movies so much is because we think the other guy's the bad guy. It appeals to the good guy in us. But what happens when you realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm the bad guy. I'm the bad guy in this story. Man, wait a second, you mean I'm Tom Chaney? Man, that changes everything. As these Beatitudes come together, I see a couple of them coming together right now. As you see meekness come out, Meekness is when someone, a worshiper, realizes the, the, the huge, huge debt that we owe our God, that we can never repay. You know, the first servant said, I'll pay you back. No, you won't. 200,000 years wage? You can't do that. Meekness is recognizing and seeing this massive vertical debt, and it conditions mercy, forgiving horizontal debts. All over the place. Man, they go hand in hand. Mercy is the generous, forgiving disposition that we're to have toward one another, even when it's often. Even when it's often. All the little places we want to draw lines and say, what about this and what about that and what about that crime? What about that sin against me? He doesn't draw those lines. He simplified this for us, for all of us that have counting problems. 
in a beautiful, beautiful little story. Mercy is the generous, forgiving disposition that we're to have toward another, one another, even when it's often, even when it's hard. Even when it's, man, I'm sorry, babe. I was short with you again. Please forgive me. Man, even when it's hard. Even when you feel like counting. Even when you feel like saying, they're never going to change. And otherworldly people are saying, man, I forgive you yet again of this thousand dollar debt and the resource and the fuel and what energizes me in that is this bajillion dollar debt that's been forgiven me period that's the only thing that will energize me our mercy conditioned forgiveness is governed by and energized by the reality that our guilt Godward is incalculably larger than any debt that we are owed or owe to one another. That will make for a really level people. That will make for a really humble people. People are like, hey, man, I'm really sorry. You're like, oh, man, sure, I forgive you. Of course. I can't believe I did that, man. Hey, it's good. Man, we're good. I'm like a scandalous people. Man, what you owe me is chump change compared to the debt I owe the king. Man, you know we're good. He forgave my debt. Dude, of course I forgive yours. Man, that's mercy as a way of life. Matthew 18 is a go-to passage for church discipline and helping one another or um, holding one another accountable, isn't it? If you've been around the church for any period of time, you know what I'm talking about. Somebody's transgressed somebody and say, hey, man, have you Matthew 18 them? It's code. Have you Matthew 18 them? Uh, yeah. Well, what step are you in? About 1.5. I've gone to them and I'm waiting for them to repent, but I got my second buddy to go with me. He's ready. Man, this is a go-to passage. I don't want to diminish that process at all, but I want to amplify the rest of the chapter. What if Matthew 18 was actually code for a passage to go to where we enjoyed relentless, durable mercy. What if when we thought about Matthew 18, it was notorious for, when somebody says, did you Matthew 18 him? And you say, you mean, did I show him relentless, durable mercy that's but a wee shade of the gobs of mercy lavished on us? Yes. Yes, I did. I Matthew 18 him. Man, I'd love it if Matthew 18 had a whole new reputation. Especially given the name of our God. Merciful and gracious. I realize as I've preached this message and we've sort of unpacked it, that there could be the feeling, man, this is going to be really hard. I can't say it's not going to be. It's not easy following Christ. It's still a yoke. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, but it's still a yoke. It's not easy. But as you follow him, these things are going to show up in your life, a poverty of spirit, a mourning, a meekness, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and a mercy that reflects his character. But here's the good thing. I want you to remember, and I'll make no apologies for this because he didn't. This is his answer to flourishing. This isn't some pale version of existence. This is a garden full of trees. 
This is the Eden that he said, take and eat. This is life together and how beautiful it can be as we walk out what he's called us to. He says this thing that we might look at and go, oh, this sounds really hard. We should look at it and go, now that's flourishing. I've studied a little bit this week of the effects of uh, revenge on mood repair is the term. There's some studies that show that revenge isn't what it's all cooked up to be. We all think it's going to be sweet. I mean, have you ever heard that? That's a sweet revenge. Studies are showing that it's bittersweet, actually. If you know the story on True Grit, you know that Maddie got her guy. It was a pretty awesome moment when she took care of Tom Chapman, but her revenge came at great cost. She spent the rest of her life one-armed, bitter, and alone. To test whether revenge makes people feel better, Kevin Carlsmith and his colleagues set up a group investment game with college students where if everyone cooperated, everyone would benefit equally. However, if someone refused to invest his or her money, that person would benefit at the group's expense. A secret experimenter called a free rider, I don't even like the name already, a free rider in each group convinced the group members to invest equally. But when the time came to put up the money, the free riders didn't go along with the agreed-upon plan. Already don't like them. As a result, the free riders earned an average of $5.59, while the other players earned $2.51. Here's the revenge part. Carl Smith offered some groups a way to get back at the free riders. Right? I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about it. I'm wired. To get even, I would have been great in the Wild West, man. Uh, I, I grew up playing with little Johnny West and Geronimo and Custer and uh, Sam Cobra dolls. I mean, I was this good guy, bad thing was built into me. I love the thought of free riders getting their due. Carl Smith offered some groups a way to get back at the free rider. They could spend some, some of their own earnings to financially punish the group's defector. Everyone who was given the chance for revenge took it. No Christians in the group, I hope. <laughs> I, I suspect there, there could have been. <laughs> if it had been me, I probably would have. Everyone who's given the chance for revenge took it, and they predicted they would feel much better after they got their revenge. The results showed, though, that the students who got revenge reported feeling worse than those who didn't, but believed they would have felt even worse if they hadn't gotten back at the free riders. <laughs> it's fascinating. The students who didn't get the opportunity for revenge said they thought they would feel better if they had the opportunity, even though the survey results identified them as the happier group. Interesting, isn't it? The ones that didn't even have an opportunity for revenge ended up being the happier group. Both groups thought revenge would be sweet, though. But their own reported feelings show that revenge made them less happy. Carl Smith suggests the reason revenge increases anger rather than decreasing it is because of ruminations. You got to relive it. You got to relive that thing. When people don't get revenge, they tend to trivialize, trivialize the event by telling themselves that because they didn't act on their eventual feelings, it wasn't a big deal after all. And then it's easier to forget it and move on. But when people do get revenge, they can no longer trivialize the situation. Instead, they go over and over and over again, and they feel worse and worse. Man, it's no surprise. There's recent evidence supporting this. 
despite popular consensus that revenge is sweet, years of experimental research, this is a different, different study. Years of experimental research have suggested otherwise, finding that revenge is seldom as satisfying as we anticipate and often leaves the avenger less happy in the long run. We love revenge because we punish the offending party and dislike it because it reminds us of their original act. Different article, same result. Here's the promise for the people of God this morning. You won't be happier living like the world. The world's going to promise you, but it's like a big mirage. You get there and you go, it wasn't that good. It's like a diet drink. It's like those little candies that you get in the little chocolate thing that you open and you get the hollow one. Like, man, get that away from me. Give me some with some nougat in it. Man, it promises, but I'm telling you, it does not deliver. You won't be happier. It might make for a great movie, but it won't make for a great life. That's a guarantee. Justin Wilson would agree. Guarantee. I told you we were going to consider the promise. That each of these come with a promise, and the promise is simple here. The promise is for the merciful... The because, the, the because is the way that we need to bring this thing out. Flourishing are the merciful because they shall receive mercy is the way to translate that passage. They're flourishing because they shall receive mercy from the Lord. There is no guarantee that if you show mercy to others and forgive others amply, that they will do the same to you. In fact, I can guarantee that they probably won't. You'll have more of those events then you'll have occasions where someone goes, sure, I forgive you too. But the good thing, the promise here, the reason their lives are flourishing, the ones who are characterized by mercy, is because there's gobs of mercy coming from our Lord. Relentlessly. Not just in small little portions that barely get you by. But I'm talking gobs of mercy and forgiveness for us. Relentless, durable mercy that we enjoy and live in and walk in. That's the promise. Let's pray. Lord, I am thankful that we bathe in your mercy. Lord, I'm thankful that you are a merciful and gracious God. God, I'm so, we are collectively together so thankful that this is your character. We see it in the person and work of your son. Whose, life, whose his own life was characterized by mercy and kindness. Lord, as a result of this massive, unbelievable, durable mercy that you have given us, I pray that you will condition that in us. As we follow Christ, that you will grow in us more mercy than's here today. That we can be characterized as a people who are poor in spirit as a people who are meek and humble, as a people who mourn together, a people who pine together for Christ's return, for things to be made right, as a people who hunger for and thirst for righteousness, and as a people who together are uncharacteristically merciful with one another, generous forgiveness for one another, quick to forgive, eager to forgive, going out of our way to forgive, even when, especially when it's hard. Lord, work this in us, please.
for your namesake and for your glory that we may be salty and bright in a decaying and dark world. Lord, thank you for giving us happiness in this. Thank you for causing us to flourish in these things that the world would not want. We want them. Most of all, Lord, we want our Savior. We're thankful. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I want to share this passage, uh, this, the, the name in Exodus 34 that, that the Lord shared with Moses as he passed before him. I want to just develop something for you in the supper that I, hopefully you'll enjoy. The Lord passed before him and he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Okay, just take all that in just one hand. Just kind of envision this merciful, gracious God who's slow to anger. He's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin over here. You got this right here. And you got the rest of his name defined. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Wait a minute. They don't sound like they go together, do they? If you really look at it, you're, you're forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but you will also by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Man, I, that's a conundrum. That's a conundrum for a God who's consistent. How can that possibly be how you could both be merciful and gracious and yet just at the same time? I want to tell you there's only one way that that can be possible. And it's, it's a Christ-shaped conundrum. It's in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When you trust Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are united to him by faith. So your guilt is paid for by him. His cross becomes yours for past, present, and future sins. All right, that's a scandal, isn't it? That alone would be like, oh, that's the best news I've ever heard. Let me make it better. His righteousness is counted as yours. Not only are you not guilty anymore, you're actually counted and reckoned righteous. That's a Jesus-shaped conundrum. How can God be both merciful and gracious and just and holy at the same time? His name is Jesus. And the work is the cross and the empty tomb. Man, we enjoy him every single week in the supper. Let's enjoy him for the next few minutes as a gracious and merciful God who's made a way for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's enjoy him together and distribute the elements.